0: back to another episode of Acumen and Perspicacity. I'd probably be quite modest if I said it's been a a crazy week. I don't think there's words can sum up how this week has been, but this year has been a crazy year. We're in the middle of a countrywide lockdown here in the UK, just like it was back in April, so situation normal, I guess. We're slap bang in the middle of a US election. And we don't even know if Christmas is cancelled or not. So I guess Boris will tell us at some point towards the end of December. What, what's your take on this week, Adam? Hello, guys. Hello, Jim.
1: Uh, yeah, I guess it has been, if there could be a cherry on top of the icing, on top of the cake of 2020, this week just about is that. It has been everything you kind of come to expect that you would get in a normal week in 2020 now if this had been any other any other time in in any other year then it it would be something we'd really struggle to kind of comprehend but i think we're kind of at the point where we just think ah okay so donald trump is is complaining that fraud has taken place in an election and you know the whole world is still falling apart we're just kind of used to it now it's strange isn't it we're not as kind of shocked by how much has happened this week as we should be, as your opening said you know uh it was kind of yeah we've had a we've had a bit of a week we've had a bit of a week, but um you know it's it's, it's twenty twenty we kind of expect it now it's just still quite unbelievable that we can just take it on the chin and kind of just carry on and just wonder whether Christmas is going to be cancelled as you said, and it's twenty twenty What else can it throw at us? What else are we to expect, really? So, I
0: think everybody's got kind of broken soldier syndrome at the moment. They're just accepting the the fact that all of this is going on right now. Absolutely.
1: Uh, Everyone's just kind of got their heads down and is just continuing to plough on through and just take everything that is being thrown towards us in in whatever shape or form and just saying, yeah, okay, (laughs) let's just – let's just get to the end of it, please. That's kind of where we're at. But I mean, under, under normal circumstances, I think we'll look, I don't know how many times we're going to say this, but we are going to look back on this year and think what the hell happened? <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable, but yeah, it's certainly going to be a time where we're going to be like, wow, did all of that really happen in 12 months.
2: I think if I might say a few words, I, I'm getting to enjoy it a little bit. I work a lot less than last year. And uh, my only fear is being lazy. So I hope this ends quickly so we can go back to the routine I was used to for many years. Lots of work, a little bit of sports, a little bit of family, and not get too lazy in the process.
0: Yeah, it's bizarre really, isn't it? I mean, the situation we're in right now, they're focused. They're telling you that if you're unfit, if you're overweight or if you're diabetic that you're a higher risk of catching this this covid this plague that's supposedly come from china um you're a higher risk of catching that well then they make you stay in your house and put you at the mercy of of deliveroo and fast food and and netflix i mean we this evening we've been celebrating you probably know more about this orin than than i do dias de la which is today. It's um, I think it's Day of the Dead, is that the correct pronunciation?
2: Yeah, it's very famous in Mexico, but do you celebrate it also in the UK?
0: Yeah, so we, well, we had Halloween the other night over here in the UK, but then we thought we'd do something different because the whole house is obviously locked down for the next month, so we had like a mexican theme night. So they are talking about wanting to go out and do fitness. If you see our table right now, it's covered in nachos and tortillas and it's and death by cheese right now and absolutely nothing wrong with that <laughs> absolutely matey yeah absolutely nothing at all wrong with that. in fact i hasten to say this isn't medical advice but i would say it's actually good for you
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely of course it is and you know there's a few vegetables in the salsa and guacamole so you're getting your five a day there surely
2: yeah if technically talking, if there's a, as long as there is some uh, mushy peas there i'm happy and I just want to tell you... <laughs>
1: Mushy face, yes. Yeah, yeah oh, I mentioned it is.
2: before. That's terrible, actually. Wow. But when I was in Scotland the last time with my friends in the, the Isle of Carrera, so I asked the local guest, the wife of my friend, what's their favorite food, and they, she said it's haggis. So I said, yeah, I want to try it. I was being polite. I didn't know how awful that is. And then she made haggis. You guys know what haggis is?
0: Yeah, well, traditionally, it's oats and barley stuffed in a sheep's belly. Yeah, mm. with a
2: lot of blood, black blood. So she made that, and it was terrible. But I ate all through it, and I kept smiling, you know, pretending to like it. And then she said she'll make it every evening. So I had to find an excuse why I can't eat it anymore. But it was it was really terrible, in my opinion. I did I'd enjoy say a lot.
1: special forces <laughs> training came
0: into full effect there, Oren.
2: Uh, my pretending training, okay, yeah. but yeah. The, Luckily, the, our trip was over a week later, and I didn't have to eat any more haggis.
0: Did you kind of go into character? Did your undercover training kick in and you became a, a satisfied, happy Scotsman?
2: I did like a lot of things there in, in Scotland, so most of it wasn't pretending. I was in love with the place and some of the food and the drinks and the good air. And we actually picked up our dog from there. We saw him getting born. He's a Border Collie. He was born on the farm. I have him right next to me here. I hope it doesn't make too much noise now. That was two years and a bit ago, August of 2018. Uh, four months after being born, he came here. But the haggis part was just a small thing we had to. I had to pretend to like and then find an excuse why I don't want any more. And I got around it, no problem.
0: So basically, when when I come over to Israel to see you and you're feeding me the local food, if I'm giving you the thumbs up and going, mmm, yum," basically think of haggis. That will be my code.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: I
1: think that'll you will. That'll be like. safe
0: word, Jim. Yeah, that'll be my safe word. <laughs> you feel free. Yeah, you feel
2: free to, to tell me if you don't like any of the food here. I think most of you will like the food here. Usually, when I have guests, they come back uh, weighing five kilos more after a few weeks because uh, they just fall in love with the local shawarma and the hummus and that comes with a lot of uh, pita bread. And they eat a lot of it. It's usually something you eat once a week, but they, they just want it all the time.
0: When I was in the military, and I was, one of my first postings was on the Dutch-German border. And our, our nearest town in Holland was a place called Roermond. And they had a, a, a Schwammer place which was opened up, and it was owned by a couple of Israeli guys. And it was called Jerusalems. But being British forces, we always gave a nickname to, to something. And we, st- the the military, the squaddies that used to go into this Jerusalem's place, it became like a, a kind of a national treasure to the British Army. And the the he used to serve, they stunk so bad in the morning after you'd had about three or four of these things that we called them DBs, and DB was short for dog's breath. And after about six months, he changed the name of these schwammers, and he actually had on the on the menu. Dog's Breaths, uh, Five Guilders. And to this day, he he probably still calls them Dog's Breaths. In fact, I did a reunion in Germany a few years back, and we went to Jerusalem's in in Roermond, and they still had Dog's Breaths on the menu, which were probably the most amazing food I've ever eaten. In fact, I can probably still taste it now.
2: That's funny, because... uh... I think he must have used the uh, amba. I don't know if I can explain. Dubi can you explain what amba is? It's made of mango I think. It's like chutney, a little bit like chutney. And it's very tasty it's a so- in a
3: uh... It's a sauce made from amba. It's it's disgusting and it, you it, and I don't like it. And the uh, people around you will uh, smell it from your skin something like uh, 48 hours after.
0: Oh it was it was like CS gas. You know, it's like you've been in the gas chamber and you just couldn't get the CS out of your clothes. Yeah, it, uh, yeah. yeah so so anyway, what we have I guess we've been keeping secret the fact that we have Oren has very kindly joined us again. And very welcome to our show, Oren.
2: Thank you, Jimmy. And uh, thank you for having me again. And I am ju- just want to say before I step off a little bit and let our special guest talk more, and I'm proud to have uh, Doobie on this show. Duby, you will hear a lot about him in this show, but I have the good chance to take him sometimes to some of my jobs. He's also an expert in surveillance and in martial arts. You will understand it later from his background. So some of the best missions I had, uh, I had the opportunity to employ Duby, and I think uh, he's a very interesting guest for this show. So please go ahead and suck it all from him.
0: Thank you. I was probably taking podcasts a bit too far, but we'll, we'll absorb the information that he gives us. And um, For anybody over 18, they'll understand that joke that I've just made. Um, Sorry, so, Jimmy, I didn't get it. What, could we break that down? No, no don't. <laughs> I, was, I was fully aware. <laughs> yeah, you clearly never served in the Navy. Um, no, no, clearly. So, so I guess there's, um, there's a kind of a famous Latin saying, which is civis pacum parabellum, which means if you want peace, prepare for war. And tonight we're talking to a guest who's who's been at war, but not not one, not uh, not a couple. It's not um, the, the kind of ones where we see, which aren't really a war. It's more of a uh, a political statement. He he's been at war, and he's been at war for nearly thirty years, but. The bizarre thing is he's also been at peace for 30 years, which is, as Adam described to me earlier on, it's a bit of a juxtaposition. So for our listeners who are tuned in last week, we were talking about the Netflix TV show Fowder, which is basically about an Israeli version of the special forces who conduct operations behind enemy lines, mounting operations against uh, terrorists. It may or may not be more dramatic than it is in real life, but... From what Oren was explaining to us on the last podcast, it's actually a a mix and mash of three units across Israel. But um, I've also gathered it's pretty realistic. And we're very, very fortunate enough to be joined tonight by Doobie, who actually served in what we can describe as the, the real version of Fowder for the best part of his life, I suppose. And they uh, talking to Doobie off air. The things he's going to tell us tonight are going to absolutely blow your mind. But in the same light, it's going to make you make, look at life maybe and think life isn't about aggression and road rage and picking fights. And, you know, like we've got in the UK right now, nice crime. Maybe it's about being at, at one with yourself and being. A person of peace, but also being a warrior. And Doobie, who's joining us tonight, is a warrior, but he's also a man of peace. So what I'm going to do, Doobie, is because I I really want to listen to his podcast, is I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind just telling us a bit about yourself. Our listeners would love to hear. And then I'm going to hand over to Adam, and I'm going to put myself on mute, because I'm just going to lap this up. Over to you, Doobie.
3: Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Jimmy, Adam, Owen, and all the listeners. Um, I'm Duby. Uh, I am I will be a January 50 years old, an old man. <laughs> uh, I just retired from uh, active service uh, three and a half years ago. Uh, and I've been an uh, active warrior and uh, guide of... Uh, special warfare warfare and special forces on uh, my adult life. I started uh, my way in martial arts at the the age of five. Till today, I have a dojo. I also uh, practice uh, the psychology of war in the academics. And today, I I am a private uh, contractor that uh, uh, mainly uh, guides security uh, guards and uh, things like that. Divorced... With two kids, wonderful kids, and as you said, I'm a man of war and peace together doobie, thank you so much
1: for that introduction and again, thank you for for joining us on this podcast i I guess where I want to start is it's the the term the term warrior" being used as as a title that's something that for someone like myself, you just see as this kind of mythical kind of legendary Persona that's given to people through history, uh, you know they were a great warrior or, and there's many, many uh, people throughout history who are kind of given this title for yourself being called a a warrior or being known as what how what does that title hold um to you personally
3: in our brain, there is a very old uh, section that uh, is responsible for fight or flight uh, or uh, freeze situations. In the daily life, fight is dealing with the reality. Flight is flies is avoiding the reality, and I don't want to talk about freeze. A warrior is a man who is dealing with reality, no matter what curse in life he took. Martin Luther King was a great warrior. Gandhi was was a great warrior. They didn't actually fight, but they were warriors. So there is some sort of persona you can see. Through uh, through history, people that fought about their beliefs and their uh, uh, and de- dealt with and struggled with church and things like that, like Galileo Galilei, and these are warriors. For me, it's the same. I took the path of a real life warrior. I was a fighter because this is my archetype. This is what I wanted to do since I remember myself. I was excited to see uh, knights figures and samurai figures and things like that. It was very romantic and very... uh, I didn't want to do anything else. But the essence of warrior is to deal with. It's not fight or kill or things like that. It's to deal with. And you can see in this COVID uh, period and the other, uh, other periods that there's a few people that deal with and a lot of people that avoiding and there are those who froze and didn't do nothing, didn't avoid and didn't fight. So this is the essence of warrior for me. From, from what you just said, what I what I get is that
1: there are different types of, you can be a different type of warrior. As you say, you don't have to be someone who's who's killing and is physically in battle. As you say, there's, uh, Martin Luther King uh, was a great example. You don't necessarily think of the term warrior being associated with him, but as you said it, I was like, "Well, of course he was. Of course he was a warrior, but in a different, in a different aspect, in a different way." And also, how you say, just being a warrior is engaging in difficult times, whether that be through war times or as we're going through a pandemic now. So that that really kind of clears it up for me and gives me a, a better insight into into how you feel yourself you know as a warrior. So I kind of want to take things back a little bit dobie and I just wanted to ask you what was your earliest memory of knowing you had this instinct of being able to become a warrior? Was there a specific thing that happened in your early life that kind of gave you the idea that you had this instinct to become the person you are and to have had the career and the journey and the life that you have had. Could you tell us if there has been a specific moment?
3: Yes, there was. Even before I was excited to see in uh, pictures and photos and uh, movies, the the warrior figures, but there was uh, something specific at the age of uh, something like five in the kindergarten. There was a friend of mine. He was very fat and uh, uh, not so uh, strong kid and the other kids, I usually abused him. Uh, someday I, I go into the sand uh, outside and I saw three kids, uh, uh, three kids give him beating him up, beating him up, and uh, it was very humiliating. When I, I could felt his humiliation. So I um, fought them. It's not, a, it's an understatement. I didn't fought them. I just kicked their ass. They were bleeding, all three of them, and I was only five and there were five. And then I uh, ran out of the gar- of the kindergarten w- straight home, locked myself in my room and cried for long hours. Didn't let anybody in because I was very afraid. I was afraid of myself. I didn't know who did these things to those kids because I was very, very brutal. It was a monster. I used my fist, I used my feet, I used my legs, I used things that I found on the ground. The only thing I can remember is this guy, this friend of mine, Humiliation and pain. Uh, it took time. The next step was that I asked my parents that I want to learn martial arts because I felt something inside that burning and I need to control the, this beast that I found inside. That I wasn't aware that it, that is there. It, was, it is very brutal and very, you know, you can do harm. So I started my way in martial arts when I was five and uh, I think... Uh, this uh, event was the the starting point of the of my career because all my thirty years in uh, of service and all my forty four years of uh, martial arts are meant for one thing mainly it's to find peace to this monster inside and to get it into control not kill it but control it and live with peace with it and uh, this was the the event that I can think about. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Just sitting here listening
1: to that kind of makes me quite sort of almost, my mind has sort of almost been blown apart to hear that a five-year-old a five year old can have such self-awareness to know sort of how to channel that inner brutality or that inner aggression. Uh, uh, forgive me if I get the, the terminology of how you would describe it. Wrong, doobie. But it just, it really kind of strikes me that at five, you kind of had that experience of teaching those schoolyard bullies a lesson, and quite a lesson, it sounds, that you taught them. And then to kind of go, rather than your parents, I think in most situations, it would be the parents that would find out that their childhood annihilated a handful of kids his age at school. And they would probably say, maybe it's time you found a hobby. Or maybe it's time you found a way to channel that inner aggression or whatever it is. But as you said, it was kind of your, you went to your parents at that age. I find that absolutely, absolutely mind blowing. My next question to you, Doobie, was going to be, once we now kind of fast forward a bit to, to your years in the special forces, my next question is basically to ask you again, is there a certain point? at which you'd started your martial arts training, where did that then take you within the beginnings of your, of your martial arts journey? When did you know that in order to, to find peace, you were going to have to go through war and you were going to have to go through that, through that journey and
3: through that conflict? I knew it right from the start because I was very afraid of myself and the beast inside. And I grew up in a very rough neighborhood, so I fought a lot. After this incident and when I started my way in martial arts, I, I became the defender of the weekend outcast in the neighborhood. And, I, get, and I, I was excited to do it because it was a life mission. It was just natural to go to special forces and uh, to keep doing it because I found my archetype. And my archetype, I guess, like uh, the great uh, uh, psychologist uh, Carl Gustav Jung said, everybody has an archetype or archetypes. But my main archetype is a warrior. And I felt it right from the start. Uh, I I dedicated my life to martial arts and afterwards to to the the art of war, if you can call it that. But um, it was very natural for me. From the beginning, I knew uh, at the age of 12 or 13 that when I became aware of the special forces and units like that, and units like that, that I will do anything to get inside the best. Place that I can. There was not, um, you know, it was it wasn't it wasn't uh, an educated uh, a discussion between me and myself. It was my way right from the start, from this incident and on. In in the dojo, in the martial arts that I do every day for four hours all my life, I knew that I have to give peace to, to the beast. Would you say that you felt that your path
1: was kind of? It was set out from very from very early on. That seems to be what the impression I'm getting. That as soon as you knew there was this beast inside you, that you've said the aim was to control it, not kill it. Do you feel that that then determined the path that you were gonna that you were gonna travel?
3: Yes, I believe that. I believe in, in my, uh, you know, in my academics uh, profession as a war psychologist, you can't kill the beast. You can repress it and it blow up and it will, be, it will be worse. The good way to deal with it is to control it, to love it, to embrace it and to sublimate it. So I knew it in my instincts right from the start that I can't kill this beast. I just felt it. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive inside. I can be very peaceful and very caring. I, I used to pick up uh, stray dogs and uh, cats and uh, things like that when I was little. But at the same time, when I was fighting, I was a beast. I did lots of damage to lots of people in my youth. And it stu- and took time. It wasn't the, just this first incident, you know. Ca- I become uh, calmer from incident to incident until one day I didn't need to fight anymore in the neighborhood. I just, with words... To care of things. That's amazing. It sounds as if you have such clarity and
1: have such a self-assured way about, you know, what you have inside you in terms of your uh, a brutal nature, an aggressive nature, but you know how to control it. And you're also aware of it, which I think is often a downfall for a lot of people who are maybe more impulsive, who maybe don't have that within them. And just to just to hear the way you explain it as well, it make you just make it sound so simple. It's just it's just amazing to hear. Oren, if I could uh if I could bring you in on this on this section, I just wanted to know just a little bit about uh how you guys met, about how you and how you and Doobie met. Was there kind of a first encounter where you knew about Doobie? Uh or or was it a job perhaps that you were working on? Uh, uh maybe tell us a little bit about your first impressions of Doobie, if you don't mind.
2: Sure. How I met Duby, I think it was, Duby will correct me if I'm wrong, approximately eight years ago, there was a big team made up of a few freelance uh, surveillance experts, and one of them was myself, one of them was Duby. It was made up by somebody else we both know, a mutual contact. And I got to work with Duby a little bit, and I was impressed with his calmness, with his professionalism. And later, a little later, when my own... uh, boutique uh, investigations firm, which I like to refer to as that, got to have some bigger projects. I brought Duby online to work with me. Duby was more busy at the time doing uh, his instructions for special forces and security forces. So he didn't have too much time to work as a surveillance expert. But whenever he was free and I had a job, uh, I did more and more jobs with him. I also had the pleasure to train a little bit in his dojo. And I did a black belt a few years ago in another martial art, which is not as efficient. I felt I wasn't really a good fighter yet. I went for a few of dobi's classes, which are ba- based upon, he will tell you more later about, they are based of traditional Okinawa karate, but with Dubi's interpretation and insights to it. And I'm looking forward to training with him again when this uh, closure is over here. We're still not uh, able to go to dojos, still forbidden. So yeah, I I know him for about eight years, and now he's written a book. I just wanted to mention before I give you the speaker back, he's written written a book, which is very, very interesting. And just today, by the way, I don't think I even told Duby, I gave it to a friend, which is a translator, a very big translator here from Hebrew to English, and I hope you will have the English version of this book soon to enjoy.
1: I remember the last time we all, we all spoke, uh, we were talking, talking about the book as well. Doobie, do you want to tell us, use this as an opportunity for a bit of a plug for your book, if you, if you would like to. Just tell us uh, what the book is for, uh, why, you've chosen, why you've chosen to write it, uh, and what you hope anyone who decides to read it uh, would, get, would get from doing so.
3: The book is, uh, I started to read, write it, I think, in uh, 2011 or 2010. It was. Uh, I just wrote to myself a few things, and uh, something like uh, one year ago, I decided to make it a book. Uh, it started because my students, my uh, students of martial arts and other teachers in martial arts told me that I have to write a book because my insights are very different from the popular uh, martial artist, uh, you know, uh, the, the sport martial arts and all the, the traditional and things like that. And I, I wrote the book. The book is not about techniques or things like that. It's just insight about martial arts, about life, about the being in the mind of a warrior. Everybody, every human being, has a mind, has a fighter in in his mind. He has a a runner too, but he has a fighter. Uh, the book goal is to give people the inspiration to deal with reality. This is the main goal. It's not a manual, you know. It's it's a little bit obscured and a little bit philosophic, but this is the idea to get people to think about the things and not read a manual that said do A B C D like that. Because I don't believe in manuals for the human uh, mind.
0: So Duby, we get our listeners will send us messages every now and again with questions. Where they've they've had a burning question when they've been listening to a podcast, and we have a, a question from. Stephanie who works for a company in the UK called Laws of Attraction who specialise in leadership and in the private sector bringing out the best in leaders and helping companies perform far better than than they are and understanding their employees. And one of the questions that she asked about the psychology of when you're in these extremely hairy situations where most people, the fight or flight reaction would kick in. But you're having to make split-second decisions. And this applies to, um, it could be chief execs or senior members of leadership within companies where they have to make a a split-second decision. And we'd really like to drill down, this has come from Stephanie, we'd really like to drill down into the the psychology behind your decision-making if I could, and then, make, then we could move into more about your book. So I, I guess when you're in these situations, I know it's hard to, I guess, kind of describe what's going through your mind, but what's your process when you're making these split-second decisions?
3: It's a long process to get there, but you you build yourself from uh, one incident to another incident and in training too. the The main idea is to put emotions aside. They are not part of the game in uh, warfare or in uh, decision-making in critical times. You have to be rational, you have to be cold, you don't angry, you don't hate, and you don't love. It's like, it's like uh, playing in a video game without feelings. I know that I, I can see my son playing a video game and he has feelings, he gets emotional, but no drama, no emotions at all. When I say no emotion, it's... It's from, for, for both ways. I'm not angry. The, I'm not merciful. I'm not anything. I'm just doing my mission as I was asked. And it's action and reaction. That's it. Nothing else. I can catch the uh, 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 one very bad terrorist. And if my mission was to capture him alive, I will capture him alive. I won't beat him. I won't torture him. I won't do anything. It's not my job. My mission was to kidnap him. I kidnapped him. That's it. Nothing else. So when you train your mind to to work like this, even in a split second, if somebody is shooting at you or somebody is trying to stab you or in very rough situations, you are rational. You are acting and reacting. That's it. it. It sounds easy, but it's a process. Have you been in a situation where you've been
0: in charge, where you've been leading a team and having to make decisions which could potentially put your team in danger? Yes, I was. And when you've got all these people that you've been working with for years and you've got to know them personally and both on and off duty, so you know them as people, not just numbers, not just operatives, What's going through your mind when you're in these dangerous situations, and you know you've
3: got a whole team that you have to think about? Uh, it's a responsibility, and responsibility is everything. Because uh, not just in special uh, forces, responsibility is everything in life. You don't take responsibility, and you don't give. You just live responsibility. And uh, uh, I won't ask nothing from any of my followers to do that I can do myself and I, I will always give a, 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 my example so in, in one way you are, fight, you are fighting with your brothers and you are fighting for them not from uh, some uh, you know bombastic ideas but in the act itself they are operatives they are not my brothers everybody has to do his thing and, it's, you know, we can see in the uh, Hollywood pictures that uh, people are uh, looking at, oh, bro, and things like that, and drama and things like that in the fight. No, nothing like that. My best friend died in my arms 14 years uh, uh, ago in my arms. He got a bullet through his heart. I did the CPR, but he was dead already. And I, and I just continued fighting because that's what it, what it was. The next day, I was sad when I buried him. There is no place for emotion in professional uh, warfare because it will get you killed. It's obscure, your uh, judgment. It's obscure, your, uh, your mind is occupied with feelings, with uh, fears, with things like that. You have to be rational all, over, all, all the way. Why do you say your mind is occupied with feelings and fears?
0: Are you able to articulate what kind of feelings your mind is occupied with? When you
3: have a task... When the time is a factor, the amount of uh, uh, output that you can go get out of yourself is limited okay so if you have feelings like fears or you are uh, concerning about somebody else that is doing his job good or not and you don't trust him and things like that, it will be a barrier from you to do the right thing that you have to do in in this split second it's it sounds it sounds cold but it's not. Because after the mission, we are all brothers. We we, we, we we drinking coffee and we are hugging and we are wailing and we are fighting, everything like a family. But in the mission, everybody will do his job. And in my, if my friend will fall and get a bullet, I will do everything to rescue him. But rational, I won't get into drama. The drama will come after. All I wanted to say was,
1: just to reiterate the point you just made, Dooby, that you must have to have such a high, infinite level of trust in the people that you're working with and the operatives that you're on a mission with and that ev- and that you would trust that each of those people you're with and each operative you're with knows their job, knows what they're supposed to do and that they're capable of fulfilling the role that they've been asked to do. I just find it incredible, again, that you can have such don't even know how to how to explain just such clarity of vision when you're when you're on a mission to to know what you need to do and what needs to be done in order to to do that it just really does blow my mind
0: when you've had your mission and I I myself am a veteran who's um, spent 15 years of, of going on various missions but when you've completed your mission Let's just say for instance somebody makes a a mistake and these mistakes that I know can range from losing a team member to losing the target. When you've completed the mission and you've and I'm sure you must have had incidents where mistakes have been made, how do you address those in a
3: kind of a post mission cleanup? After every mission, there is a meeting, a professional meeting. Everybody says uh, their point of view and things like that. Sometimes things get heated. We are fighting, literally. Uh, In this room, we just want the truth to be uh, on the table so that we can learn what to do best next year. We have a rule that in this room, uh, we can say anything with no barriers. But when we leave this room, we are we are still family. So you can hear very difficult things inside. And the mistakes happen. As you know, we are all humans. But we are trying to learn from these mistakes. And sometimes, if we find a member of a family is not fit to this teamwork, you will find it's, it's uh, his way out. So Doobie, do you find that that meeting uh,
1: after, after a mission, like a debrief, do you feel that's almost kind of partly therapy for sort of like the post-event of what you've all been through? And you say you kind of all, you use that as a moment of catharsis, which is to just let it all out, let out all that frustration, all that excess adrenaline, uh, all that built up emotion that you weren't able to to go through at the time of the mission. Is it? Is that kind of, like the startings of kind of allowing everyone to process what has just
3: happened to them and and what the what's happened in the mission. I never thought about it in this way. It's, it's only a debrief, but I guess when you say it, it sounds uh, true because when you have the ability, not, not to be judged, just, uh, you know, to become better. And you say, and you recognize your mistakes, other people mistakes, And you can say to your boss or your chief or your, the man under you, you did things like that the camera so do you want to learn do you want to go out things like that it is uh, an emotional uh, um, catharsis because you the bond between the the peers becoming stronger it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing to be able to think about relationship in marriage it will be a great thing to say whatever i need and want to say to my partner Without be judged, without, you know, and, and, you, and you know that you go out of this room and it's a rule that you have to, to expect, to, to accept. You go out of this room, even though you heard about yourself and uh, you said some rough thing to your friend, you go out of this room, you start all over again as a family. So there is a catharsis there, but the great catharsis, in, it's in the mission itself. in this brief moment of living or dying. This is the great catastrophe there is. Two things I'm picking up on there.
0: So one of the things I'm picking up on is stressful situations can make you stronger. Secondly, having the ability to just get everything off your chest and download it in a, a full and frank manner is quite cleansing and therapeutic you've you 've seen the real worst in humanity and that's been in some really horrendous dangerous and very stressful situations for our listeners right now who are obviously pretty down about the situation with the world with a pandemic people right now who are feeling in a bad place because of lockdown and not being able to do what they would normally do i know in the grand scheme of things compared to being at war this is just a, a drop in the ocean but some but people have problems at different scales and different levels and different breaking points what advice would you give to our, our listeners right now who are maybe feeling at their their wits end and feeling very stressed about the way the world is behaving right now is there any any pearls of wisdom that you would share with our listeners?
3: Yes, I will. Uh, I, I would love to because uh, it's a thing that I'm uh, dealing with this uh, this uh, time uh, in the Facebook and things like that and people addressing with, with these questions in Israel too. Uh, the thing is proportion. You know, when you, you live in a certain way, it becomes a an habit. And habit, it's only a habit. Because if I take every one of these concerned people to Africa, to Sudan or things like that and we show them... Kids that are starving with COVID, no COVID, their bones and skin, and uh, soldier kids that slaughtering each other, and things like that, they will get proportion. So if I'll take a samurai, an old samurai, say I said, as long as you're breathing, fight. You lose your sword, fight with your hands. You, you lose your hands, fight with your legs. Like, uh, like you know, in Monty Python, uh, the Holy Grail. With this black knight, <laughs> it's a joke over there. But this is the, this is the thing about dealing, about fighting, about I'm, I'm a warrior's mind. I will do anything I can, as long as I'm breathing. If you lose your uh, a, a little bit of money, or m- not a little bit, if you lose your money, you lose your job, you lose your thing. You have to get, a, uh, you you have to find a way out. I just met in Israel an old, not very old, but sixty-four year old uh, guy was a warrior in the army. Not a career warrior, but in the army. And then he had a very successful business. And he lost his, lost his business in the COVID because of the quarantine. And we we talked a little. He found a job as a he, he he makes packages in the supermarket and deliveries. It's something like ten percent of his last income of of his uh, old income, even less. And we and we talked, and he smiled, and he says everything is okay. I'm fighting. I found a job. I will clean the streets if I need to. This is a warrior mind. And I see other people, they have uh, some uh, certain life, the, their habit is in a certain way, and they lose a little, and they stress and they panic. So as long as you breathe and you can do something about it, do it. Good times will come. This is the way of the world. Good times, bad times, like Led Zeppelin, the great band said. You know, my
0: my dad... I was talking to him about this. He kind of always puts things in perspective and he's of the post-war generation and he remembers as a child seeing the German bombers flying over and dropping bombs on where he was living and coming out of a bomb shelter and finding his neighbour's house just a pile of bricks. And he was telling me about... um, We've discussed this once already, Adam, but he was telling me about when he had Asian flu in 1957, and he said that they didn't have face masks, and there's no social distancing, and everything was open. They had no lockdown. Uh, I think about maybe two million people died in a 12-month period, uh, and he said we we just got on with it, you know, because we'd been through the war. We'd had the German bombers on a regular basis bombing the uk people dying uh, my my grandfather one day a policeman came to my dad's house and said to his dad you've been called up stan and my grandfather went to war and actually this is a true story he came home 4 years later and my grandmother had had a letter from the war office saying that he'd been killed in action. And what had actually happened was he'd, he'd been a prisoner of war for two years. And then he came back from from the war and he just turned up at the house one day. Everybody had kind of assumed he was dead for two years and had got back on with their lives and gone through the grieving process. And my dad said, if you can go through that, then if people are just asking us to stay in our houses, wash our hands and wear a face mask, then we can go through this as well. And the world carries on turning. That almost sounds like
1: the plot to the first two series of Homeland. The fact that a guy was caught caught captive as a prisoner and that he was just assumed dead. And then there's the whole thing of him having to come to terms with his family, almost having... Had to move on. That it just sounds like a, a film script or a series script.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was researching his war records. I mean, my grandfather died many years ago, and I was researching his war records, and I actually found his MIA posting with the UK War Office that showed he'd been well, he, he was missing in action, but then later declared killed in action, even though they hadn't found him. And then just imagine. Him turning up two years later with his sausage bag on his shoulder in his in his D mob outfit, and everybody thinking he was a ghost. I mean, that's what my dad said. He said at first we thought it was a, a ghost had turned up at the doorstep. So I guess if if as a generation we can kind of go through that, then we can we can go through this. But I understand that um, people have different breaking points, I guess, and we we're not in that post war. Generation anymore. What do you think to that, Oren?
2: First of all, I want to say this: uh, these examples you just gave are amazing, and I would like to take the opportunity to recommend a very interesting book to you guys, uh, Jimmy, Adam, and duby and also to our listeners. It's a book by Joseph Pell. It's called "Taking Risks" in English. It's a true story. I think he's still alive. He must be about ninety-five today. It's a true story of. uh, a guy who was in Poland, in occupied Poland, he was a teenager in the time of the German occupation, the Holocaust. He managed to escape the assassination of all his family. He became a very brave partisan with one of the Russian partisan brigades. And when that ended, he did an amazing journey to lead him in the end. I won't tell the whole story, but to be one of the richest real estate uh, owners and the uh, companies in California so his story is really amazing and a lot of downfalls he had on the way every time he recovered every time he fought again it's an amazing story
0: and is that a book that you can That is available in the bookshops now is it I'm an audiobook person I'm not a big fan of paper and kindles but um, is that something in fact I'm going to google it now But I'll, I'll answer the question myself thanks for that Oren we'd definitely be looking out for that book So, I understand as well you're possibly looking at converting Doobie's book into English. Are are we likely to see an audio book?
2: Well, if you're asking me, I just took the first step today of bringing it to a translator. And the translator is actually going to read it first to see if he's worthy of translating it. If he can translate the deep notions in it in a good way, he will give his opinion. Then if Doobie agrees, it will be translated. About audiobooks, uh, I'm not sure. That's more like Doobie's decision.
3: I'm open to every idea and uh, I have no limits. That's great. I
1: certainly, for one, really want to get my hands on a copy or listen to it in in some respect. If it's an audiobook, I'll definitely listen to it. If it is a book, I will ensure that I read it as well. Uh, Doobie, I just wanted to come to the point of your martial arts Teaching and your training and that discipline. I just wanted to ask you how much of what you've experienced throughout your career as a warrior and as part of the special forces how much translates into your teaching and into your discipline.
3: One hundred percent. The martial arts, the the method is uh, only a frame. In Japanese, there is a saying that said ichi ichinichi ichi ryu. It means Everybody is a system. In my way, it's doobie system. My students call the the martial arts, we do kumariu. Kuma in Japanese is doobie, dove, bear. Doobie is a little bear in English. So I bring 100% of my insight. I use the karate and the jiu-jitsu that I teach as a frame, you know, as a methodological frame. But the insights, the way how to do things, it's my, I don't teach us the same as my teacher and my, uh, I have under me uh, some black belts that they, they teach, they teach themselves. The method is only a frame. Okay. So
1: does your, the warrior instinct of how you're able to control the beast that we were talking about earlier, that must play quite a large part in, in your teachings. Are there certain things that have happened to you? Have you been in really quite intense situations that you're able to kind of bring and show to your students what sort of situations do you kind of
3: use as examples to teach your students all my life was a life of violence i lived in in violence uh, situation in violent surroundings in uh, very hostile uh, territories so uh, there was there was lots of experience in this uh, area but my students know me. We are like a family. You know, it's like in my unit. When I uh, do things, I do it for my family, and my students are my family. So they know when I speak about things, I, can, I, I try to explain my way. I try to give them examples. examples. Like, you know, the first time that I was uh, in real danger of uh, dying was in something like, in the service, I mean. It was something like uh, 1990. Uh, we There was a couple of us, uh, we were exposed in a very hostile situation, and uh, something like 300 or 400 uh, people was trying to lynch us. My bullets ran out, and his bullets ran out, and we fought with our hands and with everything we had until the rescue forces will come. And uh, in, uh, in a split uh, second, uh, somebody that I don't remember his face tried to stab me in my gut. I catch the knife with my bare hands, the blade. I cut my hands, but I didn't let go of the knife. And uh, we tried to, the rescue forces came to save us. And the, the knife with the blade was still in my hand. And the medic told me, open your hand. I want to, to treat you. And I said, I'm, I'm trying to open my hand, but my, but my brain don't let me. I was young then. This was a point that I understood uh, a very deep insight about how we deal with the stress situations, real stress situations, life and death situations. And these tr- things I try to bring to my students, but I teach a Okinawa Karate and traditional Japanese Jiu-Jitsu. Not all of my students are coming to the dojo to be a fighters or to go to tournaments and to fight people on the streets. Some do it just for the therapeutic or for the sportic thing, but I teach my way. Because I think if you do martial arts, you you have to understand the, he- the essence of violence, the essence of fighting, the essence of staying alive. You know, many years ago, when I was a teenager, before I joined the military,
0: I was introduced, I used to do um, wadaru, which is a form of karate, and i was introduced to a guy he came along to our dojo's a guy called i think it was frank adams his name was and he looked like um, an old farmer you know he had a, a big white beard and white hair and he had these national health glasses but um, he was um, like a, a, a self defense instructor who was quite famous because he'd one of his students he taught he used to teach really really aggressive violent techniques and you wouldn't guess this by looking at the guy you know he looked like the kind of guy who would smoke a pipe and whittle horses out of wood sat in a, a farmer's field drinking cider but um, he was um, one of the most peculiar people I've met because you couldn't judge him and you never judged this book by its cover and he was a really famous story where he taught um, a female student and a couple of weeks later, somebody tried to kidnap and rape her. And she fought so aggressively that she actually seriously harmed the uh, the would-be rapist. And she also took layers of skin out of his face and uh, various parts of his body because of the level of aggression that she used on this guy. And, he, and the, the attacker basically ran off and the police were called, but they managed to take DNA from underneath her fingertips and actually identify this guy and, and arrest him. But I always remember the techniques he used to show us, which were, you know, you put somebody in an arm lock, but then you wouldn't do like we see on the these kind of Bruce Lee videos where you put them in an arm lock and then make a noise like a chicken and then walk away. He'd um, put them in an arm lock and then you'd say, when you've got them in the arm lock, Uh, shouting the ear, try and perforate the eardrum, bite the fingers, things like this. And the techniques that he was coming out with, it was all about moving the brain's focus of the assailant onto different areas of the body, which kind of reduces the rigidity of the person that you're defending yourself against. So I, I guess if you're biting the fingers, suddenly the person's brain focuses on their fingers, which are hanging off. Or oh, if you give them a, a cupped hand strike to the ear and then a screaming in the ear, then, you know, they're focused on the ear. So when they're focused on the ear, they're not focused on the, the knee joint. So then you bring in a, a like a, a drop on the knee joint and take him to the ground. But a lot of his training was based on real-life scenarios. Is this something that you can equate your training to a doobie?
3: I don't believe in aggression. I believe in uh, um, brutality, focused brutality and surgical brutality because aggression, it's noisy. It has to have lots of energy and you waste your energy and you waste your power. And if you're a girl, you can succeed or you cannot. It's a gamble. I don't gamble. I'm teaching surgical brutality. You have, you, like in the special forces, you do what you have to do to win. And the time is a factor. You don't, when you use aggression, you you scream and you, uh, you know, you hit every part of the body, you lose energy too. And then you don't know who's standing in front of you. I teach surgical brutality kill the situation before it it escalates. Uh, So uh, my way is a little bit different. If you see my dojo classes, everything is surgical, everything is quiet, no drama. No student. The students not allowed to show pain or to get dramatic or frustrated, even if they don't succeed something. Uh, I don't let them be frustrated because it's a an habit, and frustration it's a feeling that blocks you. So you didn't succeed this time. You will succeed the other time. This is the way to learn. I know a lots of experts in uh, day si- uh, every day situations and things like that. I don't. Uh, i see in YouTube and things like that. I'm not very fan of it. I think that uh, fighting is uh, mathematics. It's geometry. You have to understand yourself. You You have to understand your own body, the balance, the psychology, to put aside the feelings and to do just what has to be done. I'm not supposed to punish if somebody is attacking me on the street. It's not my duty to punish him. My duty is to stop him to get harmony in a disharmony situation. This is the main thing in fighting, in war too. We want to, to bring harmony to this harmony situation. And if you are aggressive and you're putting more uh, you know, oil to the fire, you don't know where it's going to end. In the short distance, in the medium distance, in the long distance, you know, there is people that will retaliate and will harm your family and things like that. Just do what you have to do to stop the aggression.
0: You know, you made a sentence a couple of times there and I'm now going to change the name of this podcast. We're going to call it Surgical Brutality. That is an absolute awesome way of summing up what you should be looking at doing when you're in a a life-threatening situation. And I want to thank you for the, the advice that you gave because right now, Like I said, a lot of our listeners are going to be in a time of uncertainty. Okay, we're not getting Germans dropping bombs on us and people aren't dropping down dead in the street and you're not being shot at and having to fight for your life. But people have different pain thresholds. And right now we've got listeners who are going to be very anxious, very nervous, very scared. They're not sure about what tomorrow holds. We don't know if Boris is going to come on the television and tell us, Christmas is cancelled or, or whatever it might be or the, the R rate has gone up. I was speaking to people in America today who were telling me that um, they've already seen evidence of people stockpiling projectiles to commence the rioting. Uh, he thinks America's going to burn. I don't know if he's being dramatic or, or if that's a true picture of what's really going on over in the States. But I know people are going to be feeling uh, not in a good place this year, let's put it that way. But then again, they're still not post-war generation people. And I think maybe we've kind of become a bit soft as the decades have, have passed. But that's just adapting to life. Is there, As we're going to wrap up the podcast now, is there any... Final words of advice. I mean we the Stephanie who asked us really lovely question from Laws of Attraction, that was pitched at leadership and transferring military skills and mindsets and methodology to leadership in the private sector. Is there any kind of parting words of advice that you'd share with our listeners in relation to how to be a a strong and effective leader? And any thing you could sum up in kind of one sentence advice that you would give to our listeners right now who are feeling quite anxious about the current global situation
3: yes i am i will i will say that the perspective is everything and don't judge things and look at things from a from a satisfied point of view from you know when your belly is full and everything is jolly always remember the anger, the pain, and the things that can be. Look at other parts of the world and remember that one day everybody can be starving, like the Holocaust, like things that are going through in Africa and things like that. So proportion is everything. And if you remember to look from the eyes of an angry man, even though you have everything, everything will be okay. Just remember that the basics, the baseline is survival. And if you have more than this, great. But the gap between survival and luxury is so big that you can navigate inside. So as long as you are not fighting for your life, you're not starving, and you're just losing business, money, and things like that, you have something to fight for. If you run away from this fight, it will become worse. If you'll freeze, you will become a shadow. So... All that I can say is fight in this gap between survival and luxury. There is a, an all an world that you can accomplish inside.
0: I think it's like our Prime Minister said the other day, mm-hmm. and he quoted somebody in Wales who'd built the first ever underground trampoline park in a coal mine. And he said, no matter how deep the hole, you'll always bounce back. Do we have any any final thoughts from yourselves Adam or Oren anybody want to jump in uh yeah
1: I just wanted to pick up on on Doobie's point really about and bring it back to the whole reason why we're here about the warrior and the warrior mindset and I think it's important for anybody who is listening to this podcast to kind of take the warrior mindset and apply it to their own situation and and as do be so eloquently and clearly described to us earlier that to be a warrior it doesn't mean just to be physically fighting it, it it's about your own battles and whatever you're going through in life and it's being able to find a clear path to where you want to be and just to keep fighting and to keep surviving and i think that's a real important thing to take away from the podcast is just to kind of keep going, just to keep fighting, just to continue to look ahead and try and, and keep battling on. So that's I think that's such a, a clear and good message that can be taken from from the podcast that we've done today. And yeah, I'm I think that's a real important lesson for us.
2: I'd like to finish with a quick quote from Duby's book regarding pain and suffering and Duby says Pain is a fact, suffering is a decision. So think about that.
0: Wow. I don't know what to say to that. Give us that one again. That was just absolutely amazing. Give us that one again.
2: It's doobies. I'm just uh, taking permission to quote him and translate him. But many people feel, I think I understand him correctly, they they feel pain, and as a result, they feel suffering. So the pain is a fact. You feel a pain, something is itching or very hot or very cold or very insulting. But the decision, if to suffer from it, or how long to suffer from it, is a decision. It's not a fact. Am I right, Duby?
3: Yes, you're right. Pain is uh, something objective and uh, suffering its perspective. So, uh, you know, I'm just a little man. When I read books like uh, uh, a man seeking for meaning of uh, Viktor Frankl and how they they survived by eating grass on the death camp, So I'm very small to say things, but pain is an objective. Suffering, it's a decision. You are right. It's Summers about everything that uh, Jimmy just uh, uh, talked about, and uh, Adam too, that in these times of crisis and other crises, you can feel pain, you can feel uh, depressed, you can feel everything. But the decision to fight, to flight, to freeze, it's yours. So decide to fight, find a way. Like this nice guy that I met, he lost his business and he's packing uh, food uh, in the supermarket and he's happy because he's fighting. The, the, he's happy because he's fighting. This is the thing. The action, it's what uh, uh, defines you. Not the status, not the money, not every, anything. The action. If you are a man who deals with reality, this will give you peace of mind and harmony. I wish we could bottle this and,
0: and sell it as a power drink. Well, luckily we've got it as a
1: podcast and it's recorded and it's immortalized and that people will be able to listen to this once, twice, three times, however many times they want to. And I think it would be great for people to come back and use this as a reference point. And again, as we've spoken about so much on this podcast, just using it as perspective, try and have clarity and perspective and I, I just feel so lucky to be sat here talking with you three gentlemen and being able to have this kind of conversation because it applies to so many different scenarios and situations. And Doobie thank you so much for giving us this hour and, and 20 minutes to, to speak to us. It's been, it's been amazing just to hear your advice and your perspective on things. And yeah, we really can't thank you enough. And if you, if you want to just, just to end it, I think it'd be good just to let us know the the title of your book. What again, just give us a quick summary, uh just to to bookend, excuse the pun, this podcast about your book, what it's called, what it's about. Yeah, the mic's yours, my friend. Uh,
3: the book name in Hebrew it's Darkishalid Nekuda Siman Shela. In English it will be My Way, a Warrior, period. Uh, uh, my, my way, period, warrior, question mark. There will always be a question mark because this is what makes life interesting. The question marks, the question marks. If you, if you learn to live with the question marks in your life, you will be calm. As long as you are uh, hanging on the question mark, it will be suffering. Learn to live with the question mark.